So as a means to prepare ourselves to hear the word, we're gonna, going to learn a song. Sharon, would you mind playing a B-flat for me? This will uh, prevent me from singing too high so I can't actually sing the song. <laughs> All right, so in, in your uh, bulletin, you'll see the words, listen in the silence. So listen to me sing it once, and then we are going to sing it afterwards three times through. Ready? Listen in the silence. Listen in the noise, listen to the sound of the Spirit's voice. Sing with me. Listen in the silence, listen in the noise, listen to the sound. The Spirit's voice, listen in the silence, listen in the noise, listen in the sound of the Spirit's voice. One more time. Then Jesus called the crowd to him, and he said to them, Listen and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but it is what comes out of the mouth that defiles. Then his disciples came to him, and they said, Do you know that the Pharisees took offense when they heard what you said? And Jesus said to them, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be uprooted. Let them alone. They are blind guides to the blind. And if one blind person guides another, both fall into a pit. But Peter said, Well, explain this parable to us. And Jesus said to him, are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that what goes into the mouth enters the stomach and goes out into the sewer? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this is what defiles. For out of the mouth come evil intentions, murder, Adultery, fornication, theft, false witness, lying, slander. These are what defile. But eating with unwashed hands does not defile. Then Jesus went away from that place and came to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And just then a woman a Canaanite woman, 
from that region came out and started shouting, Have mercy on me, Lord! Son of David, my daughter is being tormented by a demon. And Jesus did not answer her at all. Then the disciples came to him and they they urged him, saying, Send her away, because she is shouting after us. Jesus said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But the woman came to him, and she knelt before him and said, Help me, Lord. And Jesus said to her, It is not... It's not right to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. The woman answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. And then Jesus said to her, Woman, great is your faith. Let it be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed instantly. Listen in the silence. Listen in the noise. Listen to the sound of the This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Holy and merciful God, be with us now as we seek to listen and understand as you have called us to do. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock. And yes, our Redeemer. Amen. Urban Dictionary defines mic drop as when a performer or a speaker intentionally drops the microphone on the floor after an awesome performance. And in our story for the day, our assigned lectionary text, I did not pick this out of the blue, Jesus drops the mic on 2017. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but it is what comes out of the mouth that defiles. Jesus is clear. Words matter. Speech matters because they proceed from the heart, the heart and they transform us as, as they are spoken and they transform others as we speak them. But it's important to pay attention not just to what Jesus says, not just to his specific preaching, his instructions about speech, but also to how he lives into his own directives, how he practices what he preaches, and how the others in the story fare as well. The Pharisees, the disciples, the woman. What do the events of the story itself teach us about how we are to live and move and have our being as followers of Christ? We begin with the Pharisees, only mentioned briefly in this story. We hear, third 
party through the disciples that the Pharisees took offense at what Jesus says. As Whitney so well pointed out to the children, they have a way, a certain way, a strict religious code. It does not come up out of thin air, but has been the product of a long time, a practice aimed at worshiping and following God, some would say decently and some would say in order. That's very Presbyterian, so sorry if you're coming from the outside. What we might extract from hearing of their offense to it, from hearing of their hearing of their offense is the plain and simple truth that when we speak in ways that might just shift culture, even if the shift is good and toward inclusion, some in our midst will be offended, even threatened. And it won't necessarily be the people that we consider to be bad characters, bad eggs. It will often be the ones that we look up to, our leaders, our most religious among us. The things Jesus says are offensive. And they would have been offensive, I think, to the original hearers of Matthew's gospel. And that's sort of the point. That's the Pharisees. And now we move on to the disciples. And it seems like in this story they are trying and failing to both follow Jesus and stay concerned with appearances. They are worried about what the Pharisees think. They are worried about offending them. Do you know the Pharisees took offense when they, when they heard what you said? Perhaps they are even hiding their own offendedness behind that of the Pharisees. Perhaps Jesus' words offended them too. Perhaps they wanted to make sure, even though they wanted to follow Jesus, that they were living according to the practices by which they were raised. Later on in the story, they will urge Jesus to send the Canaanite woman away because she is shouting after us. The disciples, again, are worried about how they will offend and affect others, how they will be seen, how they might be at risk, which they were, because of Jesus' words and actions. It is understandable. But see here, they are more worried about how they will be seen than about curing a child possessed by a demon. They are more worried about how they will be seen than they are worried about curing a child possessed by a demon. Let that sink in. They are trying to protect Jesus, it seems, and perhaps more to the point themselves, from what is no doubt a very real threat, so that they too can continue, like the Pharisees, to do the work of God. Following Christ can be anxiety-provoking. And on to Jesus. In Matthew's Gospel, Jesus is very clear about sin, and it's probably the thing that makes me like Matthew's Gospel the least, actually. He has extremely high standards and broad judgments that he does not hesitate to share with anyone and everyone who will listen. He is very clear here, that what we speak matters because it reveals the truth in our hearts. But, as my friend and New Testament scholar Richard Swanson wonders, does Jesus listen to himself when he talks, or does he just talk? 
In the same story that Jesus teaches about how we are to speak into the world, when confronted with the need, the real desperate need of this mother, a woman identified as a Canaanite by Matthew, which for Matthew's original audience would have sent would have indicated all sorts of negative connotations and prejudices. When confronted with her pleading, the first thing he does is nothing. He is silent in the face of her pain. He says nothing. He fails to speak. And this allows time and space for his disciples to do that urging. Send her away. She is shouting after us. One would expect that the Jesus who has just spoken about what comes out of the heart through the mouth to roundly put them in their place, to teach them. But instead we hear this. I was sent only to save the lost sheep of the house of Israel. We hear implicit agreement. And in what can only be described as Shameful repetition of what must have been an accepted, accepted idiom of the day. Jesus calls her a dog as he denies her daughter healing. To which my response is, uh, Jesus, pick that mic back up. Not awesome. Jesus, explain yourself. Listen and understand, Jesus. This woman needs healing and mercy, but but Jesus doesn't speak. And when he initially speaks, he is offensive. Jesus preached about what goes in and what comes out of the mouth, about what defiles, but it was the woman who we now get to who held up a mirror to his words and to him and opened the heart of God. Or perhaps more theologically accurate, opened the eyes of Jesus to see the heart of God. Woman, great is your faith. And so this woman, this this desperate mother, is an agent of transformation for Jesus on his way to the cross, on his way to the resurrection. As she speaks truth to power, for in this interaction, Jesus has the power. Jesus suddenly sees that his own powers are not finite as table scraps, but are deep and plentiful, enough for Jew and Gentile alike. He sees the depth of the faith of someone bold enough to demand that God be God in the world. That all of God's children were created and loved and deserve God's healing and hope. This healing belongs to all. That her life and the life of her child matter as much as that of Jesus and his disciples. Because in Matthew, Jesus is a learning and a growing Jesus. As Dr. Swanson points out, Matthew's narrative arc draws Jesus through a transformation Now, at the beginning of the story, he is a damaged character, wounded by Herod's slaughter of his extended family. And in the middle, he acts out the consequences of this damage, 
consequences that are customarily seen in survivors of such disasters. He is rigid. He is demanding. He is a perfectionist. And at the end, Swanson claims, he is raised from the dead and he is surprised. And the surprise changes him. Matthew is telling a story with a Jesus who can and must change if he is to accomplish his task along the Erid of Ark that Matthew sketches. When Jesus denies Matthew in the story, Matthew's story, when Jesus dies in Matthew's story, he dies with words of accusation on his lips. Remember, this is, this is the one where he recites the, just the beginning of Psalm 22. God has abandoned him, and Jesus screams out in agony. His death in the story is not the calm death of a martyr who is sure of God's control of all things. When Jesus dies in Matthew's story, he is neither a hero nor a martyr. And everyone who watches him him die knows that. Jesus in life set super high perfection standards. He is not perfect in his death. And therefore, the resurrection is not a resuscitation of the same man, but it is a transformation. It is a resurrection of the Christ. And so we are called to be transformed in light of that resurrection, to be transformed in light of Jesus' life and his own transformation. And we are called to remember, like Jesus who aspired and learned to practice what he preached, that words matter, the words we speak, the words we retain, the words we fail to speak, they matter. Reading and reading and reading again this week, um, I encountered something that I hadn't expected, and it was uh, a reflection from a friend of mine who said that she was giving thanks that Our membership vows, our baptismal vows, include a renunciation of sin, that it is deeply a part of who we claim to be as Presbyterians. And I stared at the screen for a minute. I remember when I first started doing baptisms, looking at the liturgy in the Book of Common Worship, which is, you know, our guidebook, copying and pasting it from the PDF into a document and highlighting this very passage, this very renunciation of sin, for removal. As far as I can remember, in addition, in this church, we have never, none of us, included the renunciation of sin as part of our new member or baptismal liturgies. I would be glad to stand corrected. So I began to wonder what it is that drew me to delete it. It's not a choice. You have a choice of which renunciations you want to choose from, but it's not a choice as the baptismal liturgy is laid out. And yes, as Presbyterians, the one thing that we have to get right is baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, and the rest is flexible. But still, I think I was uncomfortable with the words. I had a certain discomfort with naming and claiming the the sin so boldly, the, the, the reality of evil so boldly, and of asking others to do it alongside me. Perhaps it was a desire to make the liturgy of welcome. You know, we're joining people into the church. We're baptizing infants in the name of the Lord. Perhaps it was my desire to make it as welcoming and as comfortable and as safe as possible. Probably. 
But I think I've been remiss in my omission. The words are, one of the choices of words are like this. Through baptism, we enter the covenant God has established. Within this covenant, God gives us new life, guards us from evil, and nurtures us in love. In embracing that covenant, we choose whom we will serve by turning from evil and turning to Jesus Christ. As God embraces you within the covenant, I ask you to reject sin, to profess your faith in Christ Jesus, and to confess the faith of the church, church, the faith in which we baptize. And so the question to the member joining or to the parents of the baptismal child or to the person being baptized is this. Do you renounce all evil and powers in the world which defy God's righteousness and love? I renounce them. Do you renounce the ways of sin that separate you from the love of God? I renounce them. Do you turn to Jesus Christ and accept him as your Lord and Savior? I do. Again, there are other options in our liturgy, but all of them are like this. I am curious if this has atrophied my own ability to speak and to ask others to speak about sin about how keeping silent when it comes to sin and the need to renounce it has affected the way I live and move and have my being and therefore has affected the way the people I interact with live and move and have their being. I am convinced now, more than ever, that our failure to speak truth in love is participation in sin. And I pray that we could be so transformed, like Jesus, that our hearts and minds would grow and be resurrected. And so, church, I believe it's time, past time, for us to speak, to practice speech that liberates, speech that firmly renounces sin and our place in it. It is not an easy task or a comfortable one, not one to be taken lightly, but it is essential Nevertheless, Jesus asked the crowd that gathered at the beginning of the story to listen and understand. Listening will be an important part of our renunciation, an important part of finding our words that will fumble, especially at first, out of us. To listen to God, but also to listen to those whose voices come from the margins like this Canaanite woman who taught Jesus so well. But our understanding is not complete until we learn to articulate this faith. Until we say, I renounce sin. We will not be perfect, but we are in good company. And we are a people who believe that there is love and grace enough to overcome our imperfections. Heck, even Jesus' words missed the mark sometimes. Speaking is part of learning and part of believing. And it's why we speak our creeds aloud as affirmations of our faith, as ways of speaking ourselves into being. And so as a church and as individual members of, <clears throat> of the body of Christ, we are called to be bold in renouncing... <clears throat> excuse me. We are called to be bold in renouncing the sin that infects us all. The evil of racism 
America's original sin. The moral depravity of white supremacy, the sin of hate. This renunciation is not a declaration of perfection on our part, but a mirror held up to our own hearts, our own patterns of speaking, that we would be continually cleansed by God's love and grace, which we proclaim again and again is for all people. That the words of our mouths, you know this one, and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable to our rock and our redeemer, to our God. Jesus asks us to speak in love, but love does not always mean kindness, and love does not mean we will not offend. We worry about getting it wrong. We worry about having to stand corrected, but we will never learn unless we do. As I often tell my children that when they are so frustrated with their mistakes, we learn when someone tells us we're wrong. If we're wrong, we, want, we should want people to let us know that we've missed the mark. We will learn so long as we can actually listen. We will begin to understand so much as we can actually listen and start to speak and try out new things, new patterns of speech and being. And so long, as I tell my children, as we don't get defensive and throw a fit about it. May we speak words that move us toward this transformation. I pray that God would give us all eyes to see, mouths to confess, and speak truth in love. That God would give us ears to listen and minds to try to understand, even if through a mirror dimly. And that we would be humble enough to know that we cannot grasp the wholeness. I pray to God that we would have hearts that make us courageous for the sake of the kingdom of God. I pray that our hearts and our words and our stories would tell, the stories we tell would be so intertwined with God's own story of love and reconciliation, of truth-telling, that together we would pull the kingdom of God closer and bend the arc of the moral universe toward justice with our confession and our witness and our love and our hope and our speech. One final short story. I know a number of people that came to counter-protest in Charlottesville. There was a great clergy gathering. And Jack Jenkins, uh, who is a newspaper writer, wrote in his article, Meet the Clergy Who Stared Down the White Supremacists in Charlottesville. That's kind of a clickbait title, so you'll forgive me for him. He lifts up the reflections of many of the pastors who helped organize the counter-protest by clergy and members of Christian denominations across the spectrum who came there to protest nonviolently and to witness to the evils of racism and white supremacy and to witness to God's love. One person was Reverend Seth Wispelway, a UCC pastor, who noted that this was work, but the real work will be transforming the hearts of racists. Jenkins reports that another organizer, Sharon Lisa Harper, believes that even in a tiny way she did. A tiny bit of that work on Saturday. She believes she did a tiny bit of the work on Saturday. He writes that she stood for hours in the front line of militia members who were reportedly instructed not to speak to press or protesters. 
She says she began to wear him down. When she turned to leave to avoid increasing violence, she addressed the man one last time. I just want you to know, we love you, she said. And she says the man's face, grizzled and tired from the day, suddenly softened. I love you too. Words matter. And so, church, what words will we speak? Amen.